Welcome to Murderous Roots, a podcast where murder and family meet as we explore the family tree of a killer. Well, welcome back to Murderous Roots and to our first Somersode episode for our Summer of Justice series. I am Denise Gilhart. I am a genealogist. And I'm Zelda Uverovna. I am a delight. So you that's, are a that's delight. my claim to fame. She's a fucking delight. <laughs> Especially after the poor thing. And I, I said this on a tweet I sent out with our um, summer trailer. And I, she's been so sick for so long with COVID. I mean, she, I know she's fully vaxxed, but she's still got it. Yep. Could you imagine how bad it would have been had you not had the vaccinations? I, I probably would be dead, honestly, because I'm triple vaxxed and mm-hmm. I got the antivirals. And thankfully, the antivirals, within hours of taking those, I started to feel better. Um, but I really, there were some times I'm like, wow, I would have died from this if I hadn't had the protection I had because... You're coughing, you're choking, um, you can't breathe well. And it was it was awful. It was pretty awful. I'm um, sorry. Really glad I got through it. Um, grateful for friends who sent food and flowers and messages to keep my spirits up because I was like, this absolutely sucks. I wished I lived closer because I would I would have run by with stuff for you and the whole oh, bit. You're so sweet. Thank you. Yeah, I was um, like texting people going, okay, if I end up, and I, in the hospital, I was making sure like my healthcare durable power of attorney knew, do not intubate me. Just let me go. Because I just don't want to, I've had a good life. I've had a good run. You know, I, I don't want to die. Very content being alive. And I have a lot to look forward to. But I just thought, you know, if you're intubated, still high chance you're not going to make it. Mm-hmm. And you're just fucking miserable till you die. And I'm like, you know what? Um, I'm not that attached to this world, you know, I'm got lots of people in heaven to go see and catch up with. And I mean, I know this sounds like really dramatic, but I was basically just like making sure everybody knew what my wishes were, just in case I couldn't do that, make those decisions. Um, and then I reminded myself, oh, I still need to write my will. Because um, <laughs> wait, you're as an attorney estate- who hasn't written a will? I know, right? I'm, you're you're I know. on this program telling people to write their wills. I know, I know, I know. I I am a hypocrite. Is it a hypocrite? No. And you tell people to do something you don't do yourself? Kind of, but I mean, it's almost like an oxymoron in this case. Yeah, it is kind of weird. Well, see, what I usually do is just handwrite my will because I just love doing that. It's my, it's a hobby. (laughs) And I literally, I don't change it. I never change. It's always the same. What's your hobby? Collecting bottles. What's your hobby? Writing wills. I do. It's fine. Um, but in Missouri, where I live now, they do not observe holographic wills. So I have to actually like get the witnesses and all that. And it's like, headache. but I, yeah, I should go do that. Um, which this really drove home to me. Yes, you do need to do this, Zelda. Get your act together. So anyway. I will say as somebody who has been intubated to save her own life in the past, mm-hmm. it's it's not a fun recovery. And I also know somebody she in December got COVID and got intubated and she was intubated for about four weeks. Oh my gosh. And I mean, nobody, I mean, everybody was hoping for the best, but you know, the thoughts mm-hmm. weren't, were, this is it. 
she's home now. Oh, thank God. So just for people listening. Oh, thank God. That's awesome. Not everybody dies from being intubated. So keep that in mind. Correct. And I am an Eeyore. So we have to remember that. That's true. Is that, you know, we whenever you hear me give advice, remember I'm an Eeyore. So <laughs> I am just waiting for the other shoe to fall constantly. So anyway, on that beautiful note, Denise, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. Summer has sprung. School ended um, right before Memorial Day weekend. And so now the kids are home. So I have less and less time to actually get work done because <laughs> I'm Oh, gosh. Around. So we went to the pool for the first time this week. Actually, we headed to the pool on Thursday. That was the full plan. And I, we grabbed a couple of my oldest friends, oldest daughter's friends to go with us. And we get there and we discover it was closed. And we're like, wait, what? Oh, wow. <laughs> and then I realized we have two school districts in the community I live in. And one school district wasn't out of school yet. That was their last day mm. of school. And I did not know that. So oh my gosh. that was why. So we went the next day. But instead, we went to the splash pad on Thursday. And then, nice. And then I have the kids like, can we go again? Can we go again? But this is the first year I bought swim passes for the local pool. Oh. So I'm planning to go at least a couple times a week. At least once. That's fantastic. Oh, yeah. That's great. Just to get out of the house and have the kids have fun. That's my goal. That's I don't care about swimming cool. as much as I care about just giving them something to do. Because now my oldest is already oh. bored, she declared. Oh, good. Then she should clean out the garage because that was my dad's cure well, for bored. Yeah, I said, I, I have stuff you could do. And suddenly she's uh -huh. like, well, no, I don't want to. Well. <laughs> yeah. I'll get I get stuff. it because well, I'm bored too. I don't want to clean anything either. <laughs> so. Same. Same. Although I do tend to organize if I get too bored. Um, but that, I'm a little weird that way, but I haven't been that bored in a long time. So the house shows that. I do have some corrections for our corrections quarter. Um, on our last episode, episode 37, um, Unsolved in Dallas, we were talking about the Shaw family and if it was related to Henry Shaw of Shaw's Gardens. Oh, yeah. As far as I can tell, there is no connection. I looked it up. Um, his family okay. actually came directly from England. Long okay. after her family, Shaw's okay. day. So it's possible, but it would be really far back and over in England. But I Oh, thanks for looking that up, though. Yep. Also, I mentioned that Sarah May Mallory taught in Hawaii. Um, and I said it was after Pearl Harbor. I was mm -hmm. incorrect. It, oh. They actually, she was in Hawaii teaching um, months before Pearl Harbor, even marrying there just six to seven weeks before the attack. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, she was probably a witness to everything that happened. Oh, my gosh. And another little bomb here. So after the episode and we got it up, um, Katrina approached me going, hey, can you take a look at this with the DNA stuff? I don't understand why I'm not finding matches here. Did I do, you know, can you take a look at this? And mm -hmm. I did. And I think she knew what I was going to say. She was just wanting to confirm it. I'm like, there's somebody's not related here that should be. And basically mm -hmm. what it, what I, I, we're hypothesizing, we haven't confirmed, is that her grandfather, James Edward Mallory, his father wasn't James Absalom Mallory. It was somebody else. And so because when they got married, he got married to Marie Lucille Snyder. She was already two to three months pregnant. Oh. So... 
I figured that was why they got married. And now it might be that there was a different father. So we're not sure if it's him or maybe another notch up. Her family's unwilling to get tested (laughs) to confirm some stuff. But then I looked a little further and discovered another problem. These are called MPEs, by the way. That's misattributed parent events. Ooh. Really fancy term. But MPE is the quickest way to say this in genetic genealogy. And what it is, is Marie Lucille Snyder's father was not Herbert Snyder after all. Hmm. Because she has no DNA matches on that side of her family. And when I looked closer, and it was one of those things, it didn't register because it was one of those details I found out right before we were recording. Is I had finally found a marriage record, not the marriage record, but the birth date of Marie. And I realized Mm. after looking that Marie was born 14 months before Herbert and her mother, Hattie Blay, got married. So Mm. now I am on the trail helping her with a genetic genealogy component trying to figure out this tree. So we might have to do a follow-up episode once I figure out who she's related to. And I recently just also discovered that Marie had more than the two children she gave up for adoption. She Mm. had two more. And I spoke oh, wow. to one of them on the phone recently. Oh, my gosh. And it, it was a delight. And it's fun talking to an 80-year-old woman. Always. Apparently, she and her other sister, because they all know each other, like to talk at night. Like, late at night. They don't pay attention mm-hmm. when, yeah, when they're widows and stuff. But they were so nice. And I might get to meet one of them this summer. That's really cool. So, oh, my God. So, yeah, it's been interesting. But that's the corrections. We're set to start and kick off our summer of justice. And who are we starting with? And do you know why we're starting with him? Well, I know that we're starting with Medgar Evers. Yes. And that his, um, his the date of his assassination is this month. Um, but I'm not sure why you picked him precisely. Well, our show's going to air three days before his assassination date. And that's part of the reason oh. I picked him. You're so clever. I, I knew there was a reason I hung out with you. <laughs> well, I have to say, Medgar Evers is a fascinating, fascinating man. And, you know, part of this discussion that we've had was that over the summer, the summer of justice, mm-hmm. we're going to focus on people whose lives were cut short rather than the murderers themselves. Right. And um, I have to say, in digging into Medgar Evers' life, um, one of the things, much like Loretta Scott King, his wife, uh, Merle Evers Williams, was and is, excuse me, she is still alive, uh, an amazing, amazing civil rights legend in her own right. And yes. so I'll be talking about her a little bit as we move forward, just because it is because of her that there was some measure of justice ever done. I was so. hoping you'd bring her up because she's amazing. She really is. I'm just like, oh, my God, she gives me chills. He chose well for a wife. Chose very well. So he was born in Decatur, Mississippi on July 2nd, 1925. He was the third of several children. And we were just talking about how many children. And I realized I might not have the right number. So Denise will deal with that later on. Mm -hmm. Born to farmer and sawmill worker James Evers and his wife, Jessie. Evers left high school at the age of 17. Now, he did get a high school diploma, which yes. this this uh, little paragraph I'm looking at right now doesn't say. Um, but he enlisted in the still segregated U.S. Army, eventually rising to the rank of sergeant. Um, one thing I did want to say, too, is that 
I have pulled this information from a few different sources, including History.com, the NAACP website, the FBI website, and uh, Wikipedia, and some articles that Denise sent me. So it's a plethora of sources today. Yes. Okay. So in June 1944, Evers' unit was part of the massive post-D-Day invasion of Europe, and he served in both France and Germany until his honorable discharge in 1946. So he returned to Mississippi after the war and attended Alcorn College, which is now Alcorn State University on the GI Bill, mm-hmm. earning honors as one of the most successful students in the nation. He was a sharp cookie. He, he was. was one smart cookie. So smart. And um, as a fun little aside, Alcorn Univer- State University celebrated its 150th year last year. That's so, awesome. Way to go, sesquicentennial. So then he moved to nearby Mound Bayou and he worked as an insurance agent and began attending meetings of a local civil rights organization, the Regional Council of Negro Leadership. Now, what isn't mentioned here is that he met and married his wife, Merle, at Alcorn College, where she was also a student and also a very sharp cookie. Or is it, what is it, a sharp crayon or a smart cookie? A or, smart cookie. I feel... Smart cookie. A smart cookie. Yeah, I feel like I'm, you know, mixing my metaphors I here. I mix metaphors all the time. I just figure people can roll with it. <laughs> yeah. I'm like my own Mrs. Malaprop over here. Mm-hmm. In 1954, the same year the landmark Supreme Court decision, Brown versus Board of Education, struck down racial segregation in public schools, Evers became one of the first black people to apply for admissions to the University of Mississippi Law School. Mm-hmm. Ask me if he got in, even though he was... A smart cookie. I know the answer because I have an article on it. (laughs) Yeah, I would think so. Um, His application was denied on a technicality. Mm -hmm. They said, oh, you you just didn't, you know, include the required letters of recommendations. Well, Evers was like, I don't think so. And he approached the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. If people haven't heard of this organization, where have you been? But, Mm -hmm. you know, that's what it means. Can I jump in really quick? Uh Uh-huh. It was even more technical of a technicality than not having the references. Because in the article, they acknowledge he had references. University of Mississippi never said he didn't. (laughs) But the reason the board turned down his application is because it didn't include recommendations from two prominent citizens of his hometown. Oh, my God. Yes. He included wow. from Natchez and Decatur, but not his hometown. And they had to be from his hometown. And they even said, <sighs> well, if he applies again, we'll, we'll be probably sure to enroll him. Oh, my God. Yeah, like they really would. Right. You know? Exactly. So he was obviously upset. So he approached the NAACP for help. And the NAACP Mississippi State Conference leader, E.J. Stringer, was like, this this young man has a future mm-hmm. and offered him a position as the organization's first field secretary in the state. And Evers was like, hells yeah, although he probably didn't swear. And by December 1954, he had opened an office in Jackson, Mississippi, where within three years, he had nearly doubled the NAACP membership in Mississippi to more than 15,000 people. That's amazing. So, yeah, he was just quite... He was a legend. He was a legend, right? So moving into 1955. Okay, so obviously the civil rights movement is up and running at this Mm -hmm. point. And people are no longer keeping quiet about the atrocities that are being visited upon African-Americans. 
In August 1955, the Chicago-born Emmett Till, who was just 14 years old and visiting relatives in Money, Mississippi, was kidnapped by a group of white men after reportedly flirting with the wife of his local shopkeeper at 14 years old. Oh, yeah. So three days later, Till's body was found in a nearby river, beaten and disfigured. He'd been shot in the head and weighed down with a metal fan in an attempt to hide his body. It was horrible, horrible murder. In Chicago, his mother, Mamie Till Bradley, insisted on a well-publicized open casket funeral for her son, and it brought the plight of African Americans in the South to newspapers across the country. In Mississippi, the NAACP, which of course Evers was a part of, fearful that the highly segregated sheriff's office wouldn't mount much of an effort to catch Till's white murderers, which they were right about, launched their own investigation. Medgar Evers and two other field workers, Ruby Hurley and Amzie Moore, tracked down potential witnesses to the events leading up to and including Till's abduction. They convinced several people to come forward, keeping them in protective custody when they testified at the 1955 trial of the two men accused of killing Till, and then shepherding them out of town in secrecy when the all-white jury returned a verdict of not guilty after deliberating for just an hour. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So then seven years after Medgar Evers' own failed attempt at gaining admittance to the University of Mississippi, he was instrumental in finally desegregating the school through his work with James Meredith. Meredith, who like Evers had approached the NAACP for help after being denied admission, had taken his case all the way to the Supreme Court, which ruled in his favor in 1962. That September, Meredith, accompanied by Evers of other NAACP members and a protective phalanx of U.S. Marshals and federal troops tried to register for classes, setting off a riot among the mob gathered to prevent him from matriculating. President Kennedy sent in 30,000 National Guardsmen, but Meredith was successfully admitted and graduated the following year. He'd already earned a lot of credits at another school. So this involvement with these two cases, especially the integration of Ole Miss, gained nationwide attention And Evers then got the enmity of local white segregationists. Mm, It it was starting before that, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's when they were really like, we got to do something about this man. By the summer of 1963, Evers had spent nearly nine years organizing voter registration drives and leading boycotts of segregated Mississippi businesses. His efforts had been met with more than hostility. Weeks before his death, a Molotov cocktail had been thrown through a window in his home, and he'd been injured when a car tried to run him down outside his NAACP office. Mm -hmm. On the night of June 12th, 1963, the dreaded happened. Shots rang out in front of the Evers' home. As the kids crawled on the floor to a bedroom, Murley went to the front door. Medgar was lying there in a pool of blood, dying from a gunshot wound. A suspect immediately emerged. A sniper rifle left on the scene of the crime was traced to a Byron de la Beckwith, a rabid white supremacist who belonged to the White Citizens Council and was known to hate black people. As an aside, uh, Denise sent me an article of a letter he wrote (laughs) in favor of segregation of the military. So he was loud and proud about hating black people and um, wanting everything to stay segregated. Beckwith was arrested about a week after the murder, but his prosecution was flawed from the start. Go figure. During jury selection, the district attorney asked every potential juror if he believed it was a crime to kill a N-word in Mississippi. Of course. Only seven black men were included in the jury pool and none were called to serve. 
Now, I don't know if you knew this, Denise, but um, all jury pools up till that point and for several years later were um, all male because women were not allowed to serve on jury pools until later on in the 60s. Of course. So, yeah, they had to have a special law. Why would women be allowed even mm-hmm. though had the right to vote, you know? Yeah. Uh, Mississippi was the last state to allow women to serve on juries. Why does that so, not shock me? I'm just not shocked by anything anymore. The all-male, all-white jury heard multiple arguments that Beckwith could not have murdered Evers, including an elaborate alibi and claims that three men, not one, carried out the murder. They saw Ross Barnett, the segregationist sitting governor of Mississippi, go to the defense's table during the course of the trial, even shaking Beckwith's hand and clapping him on the back. Of course. And they came back with a deadlock that gave Beckwith an automatic mistrial. A second trial, during which the Ku Klux Klan packed to the gallery and burned crosses around Jackson, resulted in the same verdict. A third trial was planned but never carried out, and the trials were eventually dismissed. The state of Mississippi seemed uninterested in pursuing justice. But Merle Evers later told a New York Times reporter that in the days following her husband's murder, she promised herself, I'm going to make whoever did this pay. Yes. Strong women. Gotta watch out for them. Then, in 1989, she spoke to Jerry Mitchell, a Jackson newspaper reporter, who told her he had found evidence that the Mississippi Sovereignty Commission, a state agency that had been secretly given authority to investigate and intimidate civil rights movement leaders, had surveilled Medgar and conducted secret background checks on jurors. When the news broke, she asked the state prosecutor to reopen the case. Despite a missing murder weapon, legal uncertainty about whether Beckwith could be tried again so many years after the crime, and a case filed just three pages long, he did. Then more evidence emerged. Mm -hmm. When Mitchell questioned the police officers who had provided Beckwith's alibi, they named different times than they had years before. And even after the prosecutors failed to find evidence of jury tampering on the original case, they located new witnesses thanks to Murley's urging. New witnesses can be difficult to locate the older a case becomes, right. as we all know. But in the case of Medgar's murder, the passage of time allowed some with once unknown details about his murder to feel safer coming forward than they had in the 1960s. In 1994, Beckwith finally stood for his third trial. Still defiant, he came to court every day wearing a Confederate flag pin. Because of course he did. Of course. This time, the jury was more racially diverse, and this time they agreed on a different verdict. When the guilty verdict was read, Merle Evers Williams wept. Afterwards, reported the Los Angeles Times, she jumped for joy, then looked up to the sky saying, Medgar, I've gone the last mile of the way. That makes me, my heart feel so good. <laughs> There's so many more details and just amazing things about both of their lives. And we could honestly spend the whole day talking about everything oh, those two people did. That could just did. be like its own podcast series. It, it really could be its own podcast series. Um, he is buried in Arlington Cemetery because that, you know, he was a serviceman. So that's yep. what one, that's where they get to get buried. And their home is now a national monument. And so she carried on with her civil rights work and, her, uh, you know, the family did. And I'm just really excited that we are, you know, putting more clarity on the people that, you know, not just their death, but also their lives. Yeah, I think that's important. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I learned about the case when I watched the movie um, Ghost of Mississippi. Oh, yeah. With Whoopi Goldberg. 
he he was amazing and he was one of the early civil rights leaders that really helped motivate mm-hmm. some of the others that we learned about later. Mm-hmm. He was active in Mississippi at the same time that Martin Luther King Jr. was active in Alabama and Georgia. So, you know, could you imagine mm-hmm. what it would have looked like had he been able to meet or get at an event with Dr. King? Didn't didn't they do some things together? They did. But I mean, like I was, I was thinking like the March on Washington which oh, was yeah. a couple months after he was murdered. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just can only imagine the power of that type of event. Yeah. I do want to say racism is still alive and well, which I think most of us know. Some people are in major denial, but mm-hmm. it's here. And researching Medgar, well, it's the third time I've done research in Mississippi. Third or fourth time I've done African-American genealogy. So... I'm, I'm gaining experience. I'm not as experienced in these areas as other states that I have my family in and other places. But it, it's how you research a black family can be a little different than a white family because there is a difference. Mm-hmm. To put it into perspective, white families have been researching their heritage for a very long time. Mm-hmm. If you look to the royal family, I mean, they were doing it back then. It, it goes back hundreds and hundreds of years Although there have been times where there's been pushes for different reasons, usually as a way to help elevate one's status um, Mm -hmm. in that type of way. You know, during the time of civil rights, there became a big push to become members of, and actually it started before then, but it really seemed to push even more hereditary organizations like the Mm -hmm. Daughters of American Revolution, the Sons of the American Revolution, all as a way to prove almost how white you were (laughs) in some ways. Mm -hmm. Now, some things have changed. I know that the DAR and the SAR have members who are of African-American heritage. But for African-Americans, that can be something that's very difficult to prove because of the lack of documentation on their families. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do know Dr. Henry Louis Gates is a member of the SAR. Little famous member. He, I was watching Finding Your Roots, and he was showing how he became a member. That's pretty cool. Very proud of that. I love that show. Oh. I, I do too. Now, researching the genealogy for a Black American family is different than for a white family. In a lot of ways, it's like researching an immigrant family, but worse because finding documentation can be the biggest challenge, especially when you're dealing with Southern states. And one of the worst Southern states I've come across in researching is Mississippi. Big surprise. Mm -hmm. Now, I always thought it would be super easy to trace a black family, at least to 1870, you know, through the census. And then at that point, you run into issues going into slavery. Mm -hmm. But it's not true, at least not in Mississippi and a few other Southern states. For example, in Mississippi, they kept two marriage registers, one for whites and one for blacks. Sadly, I don't think all the counties kept the records for the black families, or at least they didn't, they haven't been published because I can't find a lot of marriage records for the people I'm researching. Now, it could be there were different marriage rituals and some of the families didn't get married because they weren't allowed to marry when they were in slavery. But just the consistency of not being able to find stuff depending on where they lived in the state Mm -hmm. makes me think that a lot of those records got lost Mm -hmm. so it's interesting and also newspapers in general didn't report on black families in the same way they did white families 
-hmm. If they reported on a black man, it was usually because they did a crime or they got picked up or this is a favored one. And we're going to say, oh, he did do something good. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't very consistent. It wasn't, oh, Mrs. Smith went and visited her family like it was for white people. Because a lot of your Mm -hmm. papers back then would tell you all about who went and visited who and when. It was like your Mm -hmm. Facebook of then. Keeping this in mind, as well as the fact that I only researched for a short time on each person, I was unable to find all that much on Mr. Megger Evers. I was able to get information from a couple books where his brother spoke to the author or somebody else in the family did, um, stories that his mother had shared with them as children. I did feel better, though, when I realized that no one else seems to have much more than I was able to find. (laughs) So I'm like, oh, my God. Gosh, this is so tough. I mean, it was really hard to find them in the census. And and trust me, I did all the tricks I could. And I kept running into walls. But when I noticed that nobody else had any much much more than I did, I felt a little better. Mm-hmm. What I do have to tell you about Megger beyond what Zelda has shared, we'll, we'll talk about that because he truly was remarkable. A few things that she missed or didn't get to, I guess I could say, is that in 1940, this part I don't think you knew about. In 1943, he was working in Biloxi for the Rocco Company for a short time, and he was there in July that year, according to his World War II draft registration card. Then, a couple months later, on October 7th, that's when he enlisted in the U.S. Army at Camp Shelby in Hattiesburg. While he was in the Army, he actually got a temporary medical discharge in July, in June 1944, because mm. he had the mumps. Oh, poor guy. But, you know, he went right back to it. And then after the war, he enrolled in this college, like you said. But I found him in the 1950 census, which was recently released. So it was a little coup. And I found out that he was working part time at Alcorn State as a farmhand. Hmm. Interesting. While he lived on campus. Very cool. He graduated in 1952. And, but before he did, on Christmas Eve, 1951, that's when he... And Merle Louise Beasley got married. Aww. Now, you mentioned he used to sell insurance, and it, he sold it for a company called Magnolia Mutual. And I'm going to include a large ad I found that he had on the website. And it was in a black newspaper that operated in Mississippi called the Jacksonville Advocate. Oh, cool. Yeah. After his death and the release of his killer from prison, so, you know, after those trials went nowhere, Merle and her kids left Mississippi to live in California. There she would meet and marry another civil rights activist, Walter Williams, in 1976. Murley became the first female chairperson of the NAACP in 1995. Her second husband died in 1995 as well. She's still living and recently turned 89. She's amazing. Now, what about Megger's children? Well, they had three. Daryl, Rena, and James. Daryl Kenyatta Evers, who was born in 1953, died of colon cancer in Los Angeles in February 2001. Mm. Daryl was a painter and also started a company with his wife, Lauren, in 1997 called IntelliKey. And now this company does quality assurance testing for DVDs and other digital media now. Mm. Since his death, IntelliKey is now the, the testing group, still led by his wife and still doing quite well so oh that's wonderful i think so daughter rena denise evers what a great middle name there um got married (laughs) and had three children like her mother and siblings she left mississippi for good at least that was her plan 
and she attended the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York City. Oh, wow. Yeah, and she got a degree in business merchandising. When she moved to Southern California, she got very active in various nonprofit organizations like the American Red Cross and the City of Claremont's Committees on Dialogue and Human Relations. Then in 2012, she returned to Jackson, Mississippi, a city she never planned to live in again. She returned as the executive director for the Megger and Murley Evers Institute, an organization committed to effecting change in civil rights. That's very cool. Yeah. Her mother, Murley, is the chairman. And James is still alive, and I don't have as much information on him, but he's doing well the last I checked. <laughs> now, now Megger's parents, like Zelda mentioned, were James, or Jim Evers, and Jesse M. Wright, both natives of Mississippi. It was a second marriage for Jesse, and maybe a second one for James. I'm uncertain. We'll, we'll get there, because there's some things in the census that I have questions about. The couple had four children together, James Charles, Medgar, Carrie Elizabeth, and Mary Ruth. Now, no matter how hard I searched, I had problems tracking down Mary Ruth. Without any marriage records for where they were living at the time, I, I couldn't find it, <laughs> although I okay. tried. I do know she was born around 1930, and I believe she got married to Curtis, Curtis Hawkins in Chicago on December 28, 1949. But the rest of what happened from then on remains elusive. Hmm. Her, their sister, Carrie Elizabeth, may still be living. If she is, she would be around 95 years old. She married Frank Jordan, who died in 2010. Hmm. And then there was Megger's brother, James, another civil rights activist and the oldest in the family. He was born just three years before Megger and died in July 2020 at the age of 97. Like Medgar, James also served in the military during World War II. After his time was served, he worked as a disc jockey. But he also found himself soon after working with the NAACP. In 1954, he was the state voter registration chairman. After his brother's murder, Charles was elevated to the NAACP field director of Mississippi. And he never left Mississippi. Hmm. He stayed after his brother's murder. In 1969, Charles Evers was elected the mayor of the small community of Fayette, Mississippi, the very first black mayor in the state of Mississippi. Go him. That's fantastic. Yeah. And it was made possible by the Voting Rights Act of 1965. The population of the town was 75% African American. (laughs) But all the police, I believe, were white. Wow. And the government was all white until him. Well, after he was elected, the police quit rather than work for a black mayor. Wow. Yeah. The NAACP made him man of the year for his historic win. He served for several years until he lost the primary in 1981. He would beat that man in the primary four years later and serve four more years as mayor, after which he lost again and didn't run for mayor ever again. And a lot of the information I do have on the tree comes from Charles, who spoke to various writers and reporters over the years about his family history. Mm -hmm. However, that doesn't mean I can prove everything he said. (laughs) I'm not saying what he said is wrong or right. It's just, well, because we all have family stories that pass down. Right. Mm -hmm. As genealogists know, sometimes we find out the stories weren't exactly true. So, Megger's father, James was born in September 1886 in Leake County, Mississippi. Leake County sits at the center of the state, not very far from Jackson. 
I believe he was the third child of five born to his parents, Mike Evers and Mary Lizzie Horn. According to Charles, Mike Evers, a man born into slavery in Georgia around 1845, owned 200 acres of land in Scott County, Mississippi, which he farmed, planting corn, peanuts, and potatoes. But his success did not go over well with the white population, who declared that he hadn't paid his taxes and seized the land from him. My guess is if the story is true, which it quite possibly was, that this would have happened after the military left Mississippi around 1870. Hmm. Okay. I was unable to locate him in the 1900 census, but I did find him in 1910, where he was living at Bay Springs Town, Mississippi, working as a ditch digger with his son, Sandy. Oh, wow. Yeah. And to be clear, just because I can't verify doesn't mean it didn't happen. It just means I can't Mm -hmm. confirm or deny. And when it comes to early records of Black Americans, particularly the recently free Black Americans, paperwork Mm -hmm. can be especially hard to find. And I even went through all the Freedmen Bureau records and all Mm -hmm. that, and I was having a heck of a time. Now, Megger's paternal grandmother may have been part Creole Indian, at least according to Charles Evers. Charles described her as having long, straight hair and high cheekbones. Mary Lizzie Horn was born around 1850 in Georgia. When the couple married on January 2nd, 1879 in Leake County, it was not a first marriage for either of them. Mike had been married to a different Mary, also born around 1850, but she was born in North Carolina. It's likely they wed um, around 1866 and would have had two daughters, Eliza and Emma Eula. I like the names. Mary Horn may have been married before she married Mike. I'm not positive as I didn't find a spouse living with her in the 1870 census. However, she had a daughter named Dicey, born in 1868. And Dicey would end up taking the Evers name. Mm. And when she married... She had another daughter born in 1876 named Jenny Horn. Now, Hmm. I wasn't able to go much further back on Mike Evers' tree. Based on the 1860 slave schedule, which is a special census counting the number of enslaved humans at the time, it's possible that Mike was enslaved by Louis Evers and his wife Mary and their eight children. And you'll be happy to know that after the Civil War, Louis lost all of his wealth He went from owning close to $2,000 worth of property with a personal estate of $8,000 in 1860 to owning no property and a $300 personal estate in 1870. Wow. But again, I was unable to verify that Lewis did own the Evers family. Mm -hmm. But my instinct is based on where they were living. That's likely who owned them. And I was unable to find Mike's parents. Heck, I don't even know when his wife, Mary, died, as there were no death records on any of them. Oh, wow. Find. Yeah, it was, I tell you, the records, I got so mad at one point, and <laughs> I vented on Twitter. Um, but as for Mary, I have a little bit more information. Turns out her mother was named Dicey, and she was born around 1825 in Georgia. Hmm. In the 1870 census, she was living with J.W. Rogers' family, working as a domestic servant. Her young son, Charlie, age eight, also lived with the family. I don't believe Dicey had been enslaved by this family as they didn't have any slaves on the 1860 slave schedule. Okay. Now, Mary did have one other sibling named Dick Horn, who Dicey lived with in 1880. Now, remember that Charles said Mary Horn was part Creole. Now, in each census, it listed all the Horns as being black. 
Not even one was listed as a mulatto, which is a mixed race. But again, this doesn't mean much. It could be a family story that they were of native origins, or it could be true and it just wasn't recorded properly. It's just too hard to know. Mm -hmm. DNA might tell, but you know. (laughs) Back to Megger's father, James. Around 1920 is likely when he got married to Jesse M. Wright. I was unable to find a marriage record, but I'm pretty certain they were married. And this was a second marriage for Jesse, possibly a second for James. Jesse was the granddaughter of Medgar Wright, according to the woman herself. In fact, according to Jesse, her grandmother, wife of Medgar, was a full-blooded Cherokee. Additionally, she said her father, Mac Wright, was a mulatto who didn't take kindly to bigots. Hmm. One story she shared with her family involved Mac shooting two white men after they called him a half-assed mulatto, then leaving town in the dead of night. Let's fact check her statements the best we can. You see, I think I found Mac in the 1870 census. If he was living with his mother, if this is him, then her name was Mary, and she was listed as being Black, not Native American. And I believe she either lived next to her parents or her in-laws, Hiram and Judy Wright, both born around 1815 in Tennessee. Now, in 1870, they lived in Leake County, Mississippi. So this all kind of fits where they were all living. But again, this is only a hypothesis because I cannot confirm this. Um, There was one other Mac Wright in Mississippi in 1870, about the same age. And this one lived with his father, Doc Wright. And it was in a bordering county. However, since the family spent some time in Lee County, and given that Jesse's mother named him after her grandfather, not Doc, (laughs) I -hmm. tend to believe that of the two Macs, the one in Lee County with a mother who was not Indian is the family member of Medgar Evers. So what can this mean? Well, it could mean that Mary wasn't actually his mother. It could be that she was like an aunt or an older sister. It's hard to know. The census takers took her as a black woman, maybe, even if she wasn't. Mm -hmm. If she had the darker skin, they could have done that. Or it could be that Mac was a nickname and he went by something else as a child, and I haven't actually found him. Since I was unable to identify him in the 1880 census with any degree of certainty, I have no clue. But if that was Mac in 1870, as I believe, then he had two brothers and two sisters, Guilford, Andrew, Elvira, and Dora. Wow. Now, I don't know the name of Jesse Wright's mother. Jesse may have been the first of Mac's three children, or she could have had other siblings. I just haven't been able to find. By the 1900 census, Mac had been married for six years to a woman listed as M. They, they listed the kids with initials and his wife. He was the only one who had his name on the census report. That's a lazy census taker. Yep. She had a young daughter from a previous relationship with the last name Johnson. Now, several people with their own trees on ancestry have suggested that her name was Molly Bulls, but this is wrong. Oh. Because Molly Bulls was married to Esset Wright, and that is not, Esset is not the same person as Mac. They, I both found them in the 1900 census. You know, they can't be one and the same. Anyhow, Mac and M had two children, Carrie and Medgar. Mac married one last time around 1904 to Olivia. They had a daughter named Ruby. I believe Mac died in Paris, Tennessee in 1925 of cirrhosis of the liver. Oh, that's a hard way to go. 
Yep. Now, before Jesse married James, she was married. So Jesse, again, this is Medgar Evers' mother. Before she got married to his father, she was married to a man by the name of Nick Graham. And they got married around 1906 in Mississippi City, Mississippi. They would move to Scott County and have two children, Eddie and Jean. Finding out what happened to Eddie and Jean, much less Nick Graham, has been a challenge. There is another child that was listed in the 1920 census. No, 1930 census, excuse me. And that is Eve Evers. Because Eve was not in the 1920 census with Jesse, and there was no Eve Graham, I am inclined to think that Eve must be the daughter of Jim Evers. Okay. Some from maybe a previous relationship that I wasn't able to find. Because again, I was having problems even finding them in the census. <laughs> like I could not find Jim Evers in the 1920 census. Oh, wow. Yeah. I know a lot of people are saying that she was the daughter of Jesse, but I, I don't have evidence either way telling me who she was. Okay. I know she was born in 1912 before Jesse and Jim got married. And by 1920, they got married and lived in Decatur, Mississippi. And that's all I could find on the Medgar Evers family, which really frustrates me. Yeah. So, I, I, you know, I hope that Mississippi is putting out all the documentation they can find on everybody's family records so people have access to the stuff. It could be they have more, but it's in their state archives and not mm -hmm. digitized. Mm -hmm. If it's not digitized, I urge anybody from Mississippi who might have power to do so to get on it because <laughs> this is just wrong. Because when I realized I didn't have that much to discuss on Megger's family, and it was so frustrating because I wanted to find more f on his behalf, mm -hmm. um, I decided, well, let's look at the man who murdered him, Byron Dela Beckwith. He grew up in Mississippi. Surely I'll run into the same issues if it's a Mississippi problem or not, a problem being black versus white. Mm -hmm. Let's just put it this way. I had no problem finding Byron Dale Beckwith's ancestors. Wow. Ancestors. In fact, I had an easy time and more information than I knew what to do with. This is the very definition of white privilege and genealogy is that white, because they've been at, part of it's because they've been doing genealogy for so long, mm -hmm. much longer than black people were able to, that we have a lot more records available to us. Mm -hmm. But it's also a matter of the segregation and not keeping the records of those yep. Americans when we should have been. So, yep. I mean, I can go off on a soapbox on this for a long time, but this is only a, a, the program doesn't, we don't want it over two hours. Okay. So <laughs> I had so much information on Byron that I had to sort through and call down to what I'm about to share about him. And I believe the difference between them is beyond what we discussed. Also might be because he came from a very respected family in Mississippi that had some wealth that also gave him a certain amount of privilege. And of course, he's white. To start, I want to note that I was quite surprised about what I learned at first. I thought that Byron was a Southern man born and bred to be the racist he was. Mm -hmm. You know, he, That's what was, I would have assumed. Yeah. Right. And while in part this is true, imagine my surprise when I learned that Byron was born in California. Oh. Hmm. Yeah. Oh. And before I get into that piece of news anymore, let's talk about his name. Byron de la Beckwith. That's four different words. Mm -hmm. With a de la being separated. 
it kind of sounds a little hoity-toity, you know, like, oh, maybe you came from some big family or something. Well, <laughs> I when I traced back, I discovered that the day law that was separated mm -hmm. was not always separated. Day law was actually put together as one word, and it was a middle name for the original Byron Dale Beckwith. Oh. That one of his, either his father or his grandfather, started to separate it to try to make it sound more prestigious, I suppose. Oh, my gosh. I know. Okay, so I was able to trace the Dale Beckwith side to the mid-18th century and his great-great-grandfather, Jonah Beckwith, in Connecticut. Also, I want to talk about the fact that on Byron de la Beckwith's tombstone, he's listed as Byron de la Beckwith the sixth. Huh. Um, yeah. It's, by the way, it's not true. It's so not true. <laughs> I mean, there's several Byron de la Beckwiths, but not six. I mean, we were just exaggerating at this point, right? Trying wow. to make our seems even better than we were. Anyhow. Wow. Byron's great-grandfather, Russell, son of Jonah, left New London, Connecticut, where he was born and found himself in Ashtabula, Ohio, in 1819, where he married Vermont native Elizabeth Tyron Bushnell. The couple had one daughter and four sons, all born in Lake Ohio, the fourth child being Byron's grandfather, the very first Byron de la Beckwith, with de la is one word, born in 1839, and we'll call him Byron number one. <laughs> because it might get confusing otherwise. After the last child was born in 1841, Russell loaded up his family on a wagon. They all headed west to Grant, Wisconsin. Mm. Now, Russell died in 1857 there in Wisconsin, and soon after, his family would start to scatter. Elizabeth and her sons, James Russell, Marion, and Byron, headed further west and made a home in San Joaquin County, California. Byron... Number one's younger brother, Charles John, seems to have moved south to Illinois, though. He didn't go west with them, or at the very least, he stayed in Wisconsin. In 1864, he enlisted in Cogwell's Illinois Light Artillery in the Union during the Civil War. So the Beckwiths were a Union family. Interesting. Yes. Wow, I bet they were horrified at what their great-grandson became. I, <laughs> I bet you there's some that were, because... Well, especially considering he wore a Confederate pr uh, pin to mm -hmm. the the trial, right. I'm like, whew! I wouldn't want to Confederate like... flags at on at his tombstone. Oh my God! Can you yeah. imagine what his afterlife must be like with you know his relatives up in heaven throwing grimstone down on him? <laughs> Not long after arriving in California, Byron Number One would be appointed the postmaster of Woodbridge, California, in San Joaquin ba County. In 1869, oh. it was in 1882 that he would marry widow and mother of four, Mrs. Oliver Bray. Two years later, they had a son, Byron De La Beckwith Jr., Byron number two, and the father of our Byron De number three. Now, before I go much further, I thought I mentioned that Brian Sr., Brian number one, must have had a positive impact on his brothers. Mm-hmm. He had br his brothers, James and Charles, both had sons that they named Byron de la Beckwith. Oh, wow. Yes. So now when I realized that Byron was born in California, I couldn't help but wonder how in the world he got to Mississippi, especially as his father's people weren't from there. Well, his father, this is Byron number two, was a captain in the National Guard 
and moved to Calusa, California by 1907. It was during his time as postmaster that the captain would meet Southern Belle and debutante Susan Southworth Yerger, Susie. She had come to California to visit her maternal aunt, Sally Morgan Green, widow of Will Simple Green, at her home in Calusa. On January 30, 1912, Captain Byron and Susie married in LaFleur, Mississippi. Then they returned to California to live and start their family. They were married eight years before um, Byron was born in 1920. And I can't help but think if the next events didn't happen, would Byron have turned out to be the racist he became? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know how racist his father was. I mean, I just know he lived in California. But in early August 1926, his father, Captain Byron, now the president of Calusa Title Company, died of pneumonia at the age of 42. Hmm. Byron would have been 14 at the time. Wow. I'm sorry. She, he wasn't 14. He was six. So oh, my Byron gosh. would have been six at the time. Wanting to be with family and not wanting to raise her son alone in California, Susie packed up and headed home to Mississippi. She would live for a time with a brother and with her mother, but tragedy once again struck. Susie died at the age of 45 of lung cancer in 1933. Mm. Byron was just 12 and an orphan. Oh, my. Yeah. Don't you hate feeling sorry for him a little bit? You know, everybody's got a story. Yep. And I, but I, and I think his story helps explain some of him. Speaking of his story, what I thought was very interesting in the news accounts mm-hmm. between, you know, Medgar Evers being killed and Beckwith being charged was Beckwith was painted in this wonderful light mm-hmm. of, oh, he's friendly, upstanding citizen, all these things. And um, on the same pages where they were reporting that um, Medgar Evers had been assassinated, they were putting articles about uh, uh, black people who had been arrested and putting that in the title, mm-hmm. you know, arrested for stealing all this other stuff to point underscore the fact that, you know, let's not forget black people aren't great. Right. And I actually saw in different papers before he was killed, mentions of Megar Evers being a troublemaker. Oh, he's just causing trouble. Yeah. Well, are, and their their local newspapers were reporting mm-hmm. that he was trouble. Mm-hmm. The one that really caught my attention too was the letter to the editor where they were decrying, presumably decrying the assassination of Medgar Evers. Mm-hmm. But at the bottom, they, at the end of the letter, they were saying a good, you know, the, a good step in a positive direction would be, you know, for these demonstrations that the African Americans are doing to just calm down because that's creating a lot of division. And it's like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? That is always the excuse of racists. You know this? It's uh-huh. not caused by them. It's caused by the mm-hmm. black people. Or the people of color it's a, being applied to. Like when uh, President Obama got elected. He's the one mm-hmm. who brought racism into our country. Yep. Not realizing that maybe because he became president, the racists came out of the woodwork. Upset mm-hmm. that he was president of our country. Because yep. he was a black man. But back on track... He's 12 years old, and now he's being raised by his grandmother, Susie, and his uncle, William Green Yerger. Although raised might be a bit too kind or I don't think it's an accurate depiction because Hmm. he was sent to a boarding school for his education starting in 1933 after his mother died. Oh, my. And he was sent to the Webb School, a very prestigious prep school in Bell Buckle, Tennessee, 
until he graduated. And the Webb School, before we continue more on Byron, is a private school that was opened in 1870 and is the longest operating boarding school in the United States. And Hmm. yes, it's still open. Other notable alumni during his time at Webb were Charles E. Scripps and Clifford Hines, who was the grandson of the founder of H.J. Hines' company. Oh. So there were very wealthy and known families that sent their kids there. Today, the school is committed to anti-racism and even made a statement calling out the death of George Floyd. Oh, wow. Good on them. Yes, they've even made videos on how to be an anti-racist. That's fantastic. The school in Tennessee. I just, I love this. <laughs> okay. While I can't say that every white person living in Mississippi at this time were racist, what I can say for certain is that Susie Southworth, Byron's mom, was raised in a family filled with a history of racism and hatred toward African Americans. How do I know this? Oh, let me count the ways. Byron's maternal line had a great deal of involvement in multiple white supremacist organizations. This is a family that not only supported the Confederacy, they were friends with leaders of the Confederacy, including Mm -hmm. the Davises, Jefferson and his wife. Oh, wow. Um, Soon after the Civil War ended, Byron's ancestors got very involved in Sons of the Confederacy and United Daughters of the Confederacy and other such organizations. And they considered themselves patriots for being members of these groups. Mm -hmm. Their loyalty, though, was with the Confederacy even after the loss. Their loyalty stayed that way. Groups like the Sons and Daughters were formed to celebrate and honor the Confederacy. But they were also formed because as as a hereditary organization, they were certain that no black people would be allowed membership at the time. Wow. And these groups went beyond just honoring loved ones. While they did do some good works, such as helping homeless veterans and their communities, they also funded the statues and memorials of Confederate leaders that have been, are being taken down now. And they also promoted and perpetuated the lost cause narrative. The idea that Confederate soldiers were heroes protecting states' rights. Wow. And that slaves had been well taken care of and slavery was not the reason for the Civil War. Oh my God. Yeah. These groups were a huge reason that that's why that got taught in the South. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They also use the narrative to push continued support for white supremacist policies in their communities. Both groups are still active today. Uh, in my opinion, just as racist as in the past, particularly the Sons of the Confederacy. So I went and I went to their websites to look up what their mission statements were and their history to see if they had anything on some of this Mm -hmm. part of the mission statement of the United daughters of the Confederacy says the following, the United daughters of the Confederacy is an organization dedicated to the purpose of honoring the memory of its Confederate ancestors, protecting, preserving, and marking the places made historic by Confederate valor, collecting and preserving the material for a truthful history of the war between the States. Wow. So while they don't say anywhere on their website or there that what that truthful history is and what they're teaching, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure it's the lost cause narrative still today, just based wow. on the way that's worded. Although I will say that their mission statement does say that racists are not allowed to be part of their organization. They will be let go, <laughs> which I found kind of yeah. amusing. Yeah, we'll see that happen for as, sure. 
as for the sons of the Confederacy, of which Byron, Byron de la Beckwith had been a member and an active member in, mm-hmm. they refer to the Civil War as the War for Southern Independence. And they talk about the valor and heroism of their ancestors while referencing the Magna Carta and Anglo-Saxon rights in their constitution. Huh. And for anybody going, huh, I, I think our, our audience is probably a lot, are pretty smart to figure this out. Anglo-Saxon basically is implying white rights. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, they just basically don't say white, but it's there. Mm-hmm. And to say that Byron's family was involved in these groups is an understatement. His grandparents and aunts and uncles on his mother's side were active members and leaders in these groups. His grandmother, Susan Southworth Yerger, was president of the Verena Jefferson Davis chapter of the United Daughters of the Confederacy in 1906, and then a veterans chairperson in 1911. She was active in this organization until her death. So Byron was taught hate from the age of six on, at least. Mm. He joined organizations and groups that only encouraged this way of thinking. After marrying his first wife, Mary Louise Williams, a young woman from Rhode Island, and settling in Greenwood, Mississippi, after his time as a Marine in World War II, Byron got work as a salesman. Then the Brown versus the Board of Education ruling came down. And, you know, I think you mentioned that earlier. It got all the white people in an uproar in the South, and there was what was called white backlash. Well, Byron was very upset at the prospect of his son, also Byron de la Beckwith, um, (laughs) going to school with black children. Mm -hmm. So now he gets active with his racism beyond the sons of the Confederacy. He joined the KKK and the Citizens Council. Yeah, I think it was also called the White Citizens Council. Well, it's kind of implied. It's like they called it in the South Citizens Council, but the implication is it's White Citizens Council because they weren't letting black people join the group. Mm-hmm. And it sounds kind of innocuous, just Citizens Council. It wasn't. Not only did you have to be white to be in the group, but their primary goal was to prevent integration of public schools. Their other goals were suppressing the black vote and using economic harassment, such as boycotts and evicting families from their homes. Mm-hmm. They found their own way to terrorize their black neighbors. If you were someone who supported integration, you were the enemy. Around the same time as Zelda got into with Emmett Till being lynched, things started to shift in Mississippi. I mean, that's when Megger Evers got really at the height of everything. He was motivated to investigate what happened to him, get everything done. Um, and he didn't live that far from Byron Dale Beckwith. Really, they were only like a county apart. And the more people got upset, the more things you saw in the paper saying what a troublemaker he was. It was just building. And this man who treasured his collection of Jefferson Davis memorabilia, who had been raised to hate any black person, decided that Evers was the enemy and had to be stopped by 1963, as we talked about. Oh, my God. That was the family tree of Medgar Evers with a little bit of information on his murderer, Byron De La Beckwith. Wow. 
You know, it really was underscored that the records they kept for black people were very different than the records that they kept for white people. Yeah. I mean, the ease at which I found everything on his family and I could have kept going. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you did a great job. This was fascinating. Well, thank you. And next up for our summer of justice will be what got Megger Evers really passionate in a way. Bef- I mean, he he was always behind civil rights, but really pushed him to the edge. And that is Emmett Till. And we're going to learn about his family. And it's, it's pretty interesting. I was able to go a little bit back a little bit further with him than I was um, Megger's family. But it's, I mean, it's, that's such a sad story. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's heartbreaking. It's horrific. Yeah. It's also very fascinating. And then to look at his family dynamic before his murder is even more interesting, I found. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I can't wait to talk about that. And for those of you who are listening right now, um, before we sign off, we are not include this episode did not include all we discussed about Byron Dale Beckwith because we did not want to take away from Megger Evers because, I mean, that is our focus here. But if you want to learn more about his family tree, which was very fascinating and very scary in a way, I think, very violent, um, we will have an episode available to listen to on Patreon. And if you want to listen to it, you just need to become a patron. It's only like the, you could do it for $3, as low as $3 mm-hmm. to become a patron. So, mm-hmm. but Thank you for joining us. I'm so glad you're feeling better and you were able to do this. I am too. This was really cool. And um, I hope everybody who's listening really enjoyed it. And it'll be even more fascinating when we talk about Emmett Till next time. Yeah, I can't wait. I mean, we have some really good ones right now. And right now I'm working on the family tree of Diane Fossey. And that's an interesting tree. Yeah. I I can't even imagine. But thanks, everyone, and um, we hope you return where murder and family meet. Bye. If you enjoyed our discussion on murder and family, we would love it if you would subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. You could also help support our podcast by becoming a patron on patreon.com slash murderousroots. For more information on this episode and past episodes, as well as merchandise, Just go to our website at MurderousRoots.com. And of course, you can also find us on social media at Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and even on TikTok. Thanks, everyone.